in our study in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to finish out the third chapter. And so we've entitled uh, the message today, Show and Tell. Show and Tell. And uh, that's what we're going to be doing uh, this Saturday, our R2R race. You know, we are going to not only be telling others about uh, the misery of human trafficking and raising awareness, we're going to show, we're going to demonstrate that we care about it. We're going to demonstrate because Team Trinity, with our, uh, our blue wristbands here, we're going to show up volunteering, we're giving, we're supporting, we're going to walk, we're going to run, we're going to do whatever, uh, just to let our voice be heard. Uh, other churches in this community, I'm excited. You know, eLife, uh, my wife this past week was a part of uh, two of their prayer services, kind of sharing the vision. And uh, they were so kind to uh, allow her to do that. Of course, uh, she and Peggy Galanos are partnering with uh, One Voice and all these incredible things that are happening in our community here locally. And so, uh, you know, Team Elive, Team Trinity, uh, Christian Bracken, a pastor friend of mine, uh, Stormy Swan, another pastor friend of mine, you know, uh, they're going to be having representations there. So it's going to be an awesome event. Saturday morning is going to be incredible. I'm looking forward to it. So how many of you remember in school that you would have a time uh, that the teacher would designate as show and tell, and you would bring something to show, and then you would tell about it? Well, that's like the gospel. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the apostle Paul said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So uh, the gospel isn't something that we simply talk about. The gospel is something that's demonstrated, demonstrated in life transformation, demonstrated in the power of God hitting our lives and touching our lives. Uh, as uh, Pastor Barry mentioned a moment ago during communion, you know, over 1,500 people coming forward in all of our services last weekend simply to follow what Scripture says. You know, the last verse that we read uh, in our teaching on biblical healing last weekend was James 5.16. Any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, let them anoint them with oil, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and if any have committed sin, it shall be forgiven them. And so we said, hey, that's what the Bible says. Let's be, let's be a Bible church, and let's do what the Bible says, right? So thank you to all of our uh, elders and pastors and, and staff, volunteers, uh, deacons that participated as those who administered prayer and, and ministry uh, last weekend. And for all of you that came forward, how many know that we were blessed as a church, that God poured out his spirit in a special way, and we're thankful for that. <clears throat> the gospel isn't something that we simply talk about. It's something that we demonstrate. And so Peter in Acts 3, he, God demonstrated his power through Peter. He showed the power of God in this man laying from his mother's womb, miraculously being healed. And then he capitalized on this miracle, and he began to preach a powerful sermon that we're going to read and we're going to study here in just a moment. Speaking of show and tell and kids going to school, you know, to have a time of show and tell, there was a uh, kindergarten class, and it was their last day of, of school, and so the kids uh, brought gifts, and uh, three gifts in particular. Um, one little kid uh, whose father owned a florist shop uh, came and, and brought a, uh, a gift to the teacher, and, and it was in a box, and she shook it, and she said, I know what's in here. Flowers and the little kids said, "Yeah." And, and then, uh, then the next kid came up whose parent owned a candy store, and and gave the teacher a box. And the teacher shook the box and said, "I know what's in here: chocolates." And the little kids like, "Yeah, yeah." And then the third kid brought up a, a box, and and it was leaking, right? And this kid's dad owned a liquor store, so the the teacher uh, put a, a drop of it on her finger and put it on her tongue. She said, 
I know what this is, wine. And the little kid said, no. And then so she tasted it again. She goes, champagne. The little kid said, no. And she said, what's in it? And the little kindergartner said, a puppy. <laughs> Show and tell. Uh-huh. Okay. Now go with me to Acts chapter 3, verse 12. Acts 3, 12. I want you to know, we're going to get right into it today. You better have your seatbelt fastened. I just want you to know in advance, I will probably, 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 the Spirit of the Lord speaking through me may, may ever so gently offend your sensibilities just a little bit, but that's okay. Sometimes we need to be offended in a good way. We need to be like, our world needs to be rocked just a little bit, okay? Uh, we need to be challenged in, in just a, in, in a, in sometimes in different ways in our lives. So just kind of giving you a heads up, you know, Trinity Church is kind of where uh, cultural issues and biblical truth intersect. I used to say where cultural truth, uh, where cultural issues and biblical truth intersect, but I'm going to start saying where cultural issues and biblical truth collide, because today's going to be a collision. So just letting you know in advance, make sure your seatbelts are fastened. So look at verse 12. So when Peter saw it, saw what? After the miracle, literally thousands of people were gathering together, because this was a notable miracle. When he saw it, Peter was instant in season and out of season, he responded to the people. Now, this is a Jew speaking to Jews. Understand the context. Understand the, the historical context. This is a Jew, Peter, born and raised a Jew, in the temple, speaking to other Jews and some proselytes, proselyte, uh, those that were proselytized from the Gentile uh, into Judaism, all right? But it was primarily Jews, and they understood their Jewish heritage. They understood the, the Jewish law. They understood the Torah. They understood the Old Testament scripture. So when Peter saw this, he responded to the people, and notice what he said. Men of Israel. Say that with me. Men of Israel. Now, God has a special place in his heart for women. And, you know, women, you've heard me talk about this. Women are the most unique creatures in all of creation. Uh, you're different than angels. You're different than men. You're different than the way you were made, how you were made, why you were made. You're, you are a special creature in the eyes of God. So special that in a world that by and large has marginalized women, devalued women, and demeaned women, even to this 21st century that we're living in, Jesus Christ, the rabbi of all rabbis, did something that was scandalous in his day and hour. He valued women and womanhood. He elevated women. He blessed women. He allowed women to be part of his ministry team. He, some of the most incredible miracles he performed, he performed for women or for mothers by raising their dead son. Uh, there were, I mean, and the way Jesus treated children. So there are times that God addresses women and children and because they are valuable and, and God loves women and children in a, in a very unique and special way. But there are times that God addresses men. And there are times that God needs to address men. And Peter is doing this. Peter is addressing the men on this particular day, just like he did on the book of Acts. On, uh, excuse me, on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, he said, men of Israel. Paul was preaching in Greece to the Athenians. And when Paul began his message, he said, men of Athens. And then he addressed his comments. So Peter is doing what God on occasion will do, a direct message to men. And so I want to say, men of America. How's that work? How's that sound? Or men of Lubbock, men of Trinity, 
All right, so now this, this is a direct message that, that Peter is about to address men. And why is it important? Because men need to be addressed. And we need to address men in our culture today. We need to address manliness in our culture today. We need to address manhood in our culture today. Why? Because listen, listen, for over two decades, male masculinity and manhood have been under assault by pop culture. Just look over the last two decades at the situational uh, comedy TV series that have been on television, right? From the King of Queens to Bart Simpson to the Family Guy. And they all have the same formula. They all have the same false stereotype of an overweight, beer-drinking sports addict who reserves his emotions for athletic competitions, and that only. A man who is dumb and detached from reality and from the needs of his wife and the needs of his children. That's why the latest movie, American Sniper, has been assailed. Why? Because it does not fit pop culture's progressive narrative, which is what? American Sniper is contrary to the normal message that's been fed now for decades to this generation of men and young men. American Sniper doesn't fit the stereotype. Why? You have a heterosexual male warrior who loves his country and loves his wife and loves his kids and has a brain and kills bad guys. And that's not the kind of man that pop culture wants to elevate for other young men to look up to. And therein lies the challenge for many young men in our culture today. Who are their role models? Young man, I want to say to you that American Sniper and not Paul Blart <laughs> should be your role model, okay? I love Kevin James. He's a good guy. He's a good actor, and I'm sure it's a funny movie. But American Sniper, Paul Blart. A ladies, the kind of man you want to marry is an American Sniper, not a Paul Blart, okay? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We are facing the greatest threat of Western civilization and our freedom with the rise of radical Islam. As we are comfortably seated in this beautiful sanctuary that God has provided for us, the war is on and the war is raging right now. We are experiencing another holocaust. This time it is a Christian holocaust. We just celebrated, or excuse me, not celebrated, we just remembered the anniversary, the 100-year anniversary, 1915. The Ottoman Empire slaughtered over 1 million Armenian Christians. It's not even mentioned by our press. It's not even mentioned by our congressmen or senators or the president of the United States of America. It was mentioned, and I give credit to Rhonda Rousey, an MMA uh, uh, champion, who raised the awareness of this this grisly crime committed against Christians. Why is that important? Because there's another Christian holocaust going on right now. In the Middle East, primarily, and in China, persecution in China has risen 10,000-fold. That's a recent news article that I read. 10,000-fold persecution of Christians in China. In the Middle East right now, Christians by the thousands are being brutalized, slaughtered, beheaded, before video cameras for the whole world to see. Women are being raped and sold into slavery. Christian 
families are being driven from their homes. Literally by the thousands, they're being slaughtered right now. And what are we talking about in America? We're talking about Bruce Jenner having a sex change and 17 million Americans tuned in to watch the interview. America, have we lost our mind? Have we lost our way? Have we lost our sense of purpose and destiny? Western civilization, as we've known it, is being dismantled before our very eyes. This next week, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case on gay marriage. Now, I have tremendous compassion for those who are in the gay lifestyle. Like I have tremendous compassion for those who are involved in heterosexual immorality. Whether it's heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality, it is a bondage from the pit of hell, from Satan, and only Jesus and the power of his blood can set us free from such hellish bondages. But if this nation crosses another line of morality as we did on the abortion issue, and we cross it on this issue, you can be assured the death of America has begun. It has commenced. Don't think for a moment that this next year, this next election, where you get to choose who your leader will be, if this nation does not select a God-fearing, God-honoring individual, male, female, white, black, who cares, as long as they are Christ-centered in their understanding and values, this nation is going to be in a bad way. I don't say that as Carl Toady. That's not my opinion. I say that by the spirit of the living God speaking through me, and it's time for the church to wake up and become the church once again. <laughs> Men of Israel, God has a message, and it's not too late if we will heed that message and respond to that message. So then here's what Peter does. He not only addresses the men, but he talks about the greatest man that's ever lived, Jesus. He talks about what makes Jesus a savior worthy of our full, undivided devotion and attention. He gives us six names for Jesus and six things that we need to know about Jesus. So he begins once again. He says, uh, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? The miracle just occurred. Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say that with me. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say it again. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do these three individuals all have in common? What are some of the things these three individuals all have in common? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are the three things, obvious things these, these three individuals have in common? Come on. They're men. Thank you. That, that, that's, that's obvious, and that's, I was looking for that answer. Thank you. All three are men. What else do these three men have in common? They, they're all, they're all, they all have a family. Okay? They, so three men, three husbands, three fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They serve the God of our fathers. Okay? So that's 
That's the order. The order is God wants every man to serve him. God wants every man to be a husband someday, to be a father someday, and to be a servant of God someday. That's what builds great families, which builds great civilizations. Now, why, that, why is that important? Because if you change a man, you change a marriage. If you change a marriage, you change a family. If you change a family, you change a community. If you change a community, you change a city. If you change a city, you change a nation. And if you change a nation, you change the world. You change the world. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three men, all married, all had children. Some had multiple marriages. <laughs> Thank God we live in another time. And all the wives said, amen. I mean, why is it that guys could have more than one wife, but like a wife couldn't have more than one guy? You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, we're under the new covenant now. So this is God's plan. And because it's God's plan, the devil wants to destroy it. Everything that God does, Satan is against. Everything God's for, Satan is against. Everything God stands for, Satan attacks. And why are there so much, why is there such energy behind changing and altering the definition of marriage in the United States of America? Because marriage is not a good idea, it's a God idea. It was invented and created by God as a gift to promote human civilization. He created them male and female, the original image of God in humanity is expressed through male and female and because the original image of God the image of our creator is expressed through male and female Satan says I will attack the image of God in man and in woman and I will twist it and I will distort it and I will devalue it and I will mar it because I can't attack God but I can attack the image of God in you my friend you are the image of the living God created in his image Image and in his likeness for a glorious eternal purpose. And so the enemy attacks that. And God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jake, the God of our fathers who glorified his servant Jesus. What does it mean to be a man? A man like Jesus. You know, we have men in our world who try to be gods. But the story of the gospel is how God became a man. Humbled himself to become a man. But not only that, Jesus not only humbled himself to become a man, he humbled himself and became a servant. Guys, listen to me. What does it mean to be a real man? A real man. Not some macho description of a real man, but a real man is a man like Jesus, who first of all was a servant. You know what it means to be a real man, guys? Maybe you didn't have the best example growing up. Maybe you did, and God bless you if you did. But the best example of a man is a man that is a servant like Jesus. You see, Jesus came in this world not to be served, but to serve. And so what does it mean for us to be real men? It means that a real man serves his family. A real man serves his wife. A real man serves his children. A real man serves his community. A real man serves his country with honor and distinction. That's what a real man does. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And so he becomes our example. You see, guys, we treat women and children the way Jesus treated women and children. We don't misuse or abuse women. We never lay our hand 
on a woman, guys. Never, never. And we never abuse a child. Now, sometimes I need a nice little spanking on the behind once in a while in love, okay? And usually a wooden spoon or a wooden ruler works really good for that. It's like, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, where you leave a, a mark, you know what I'm talking about? But just the, ah, on a bare butt. Not, 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 not with the underwear on. You just pull those little things down a little bit, give them a little, and that, that does it all. They're like, ah, you're killing me. No, I'm not. You're going to live, I promise. Real men following the example of Jesus, know how to treat women, know how to treat children, and know how to serve others, because that's the example that Jesus left for us. Now, in this story that we're reading here, in this, in this text, Peter also addresses something else. What does he address? He addresses who holds the greatest guilt for the killing of Jesus. And what we discover, according to Peter, it was the Jewish leaders of that day. But here's what you need to understand. Jews today are no more guilty of killing Jesus than Germans living today are guilty of the Holocaust or Caucasian Americans are guilty of slavery. A poll conducted by the Anti-Defamation League a little over a year ago found that 26% of Americans believe that Jews killed Jesus. Not Jews of 2,000 years ago, but Jews of today. Now, why is that a dangerous uh, uh, statistic? Because... Blaming Jews for the death of Jesus became the impetus for the wholesale slaughter of Jews during the Holocaust. So here's what scripture says in Ezekiel 18.20. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. And the parents will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteousness behavior. uh, And wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. So we cannot blame Jews of today for killing Jesus. Are you with me? So uh, everyone is accountable for their own sins and their own deeds, and each generation is accountable for their own sins and their own deeds. But Peter also says something else here. He's a Jew speaking to Jews, and he's saying, you killed Jesus. You betrayed him. You turned him over to Pilate. And he says, Pilate was determined to let him go, but you were determined to have him killed. There's a, there's a powerful principle here. Did you know that sometimes people in their wickedness can be more determined than people in their righteousness? Sometimes wicked people are more determined in their wickedness than righteous people are determined in their righteousness. You see, it was a righteous thing for Pilate to let Jesus go. He was determined to let Jesus go, but the Jewish religious leaders of that day were more determined to see Jesus nailed to that cross. The question for us today is, are we going to allow wicked people to be more determined in their wickedness than righteous people are determined in their righteousness? I say that we must be more determined in advancing the cause of righteousness than wicked people are determined in advancing their cause of wickedness. Come on, church. Number two, Peter refers to Jesus as the holy and just one. Uh, Look at verse 14. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Who is Jesus? He's a servant. Who is Jesus? He's the Holy and just one. How many know it's fun being number one? Right, just ask the, the, the winners of the last Super Bowl, right? Uh, just ask the winner of the last Masters uh, golf tournament. It's fun being number one. It's not fun being number two. 
I mean, what, what's the old saying? Uh, second, uh, coming in second, really, you're the first place what? Loser. So it's better not even, it's better being like me, not even playing in the Masters. <laughs> to have played, competed at the highest level, and only to come up short and be the second best. Well, Jesus is number one. But when you look at Jesus as being number one, he's number one and there's not a close second. There's not a close third. I mean, there's Jesus and then that's it. He is the holy and just one. And we took the holy and just one, we meaning the human race, and we sold him out and released a murderer in his place. Imagine Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious terrorist of his day. That's what the word murderer means in the Greek, terrorist. And he was locked up. He was going to be executed that day. He was waiting for the jailers to come and take him out and nail him to a cross. And on this day, when, when Pilate, determined to let Jesus go, <clears throat> trying to find a way to let him go, said, hey, uh, on this special uh, time of, of, of celebration, uh, I, always, I always release one prisoner to you. Uh, how about if I release Jesus instead of Barabbas? And they said, give us Barabbas. So on that day, the jailers walked down the corridor to the cell that, that Barabbas was being held in, chained in. And Barabbas is thinking, they're going to open the door, they're going to unlock my shackles, and they're going to take me to be crucified. But instead of taking him to be crucified, they, take him, they took him out of the compound and they said, you're free. Imagine what that moment felt like for Barabbas. He's thinking, this is the luckiest day of my life. And he looks over and he sees Jesus. And he knows, he probably knows a little bit about Jesus because who didn't, right? I mean, Jesus, the talk of Jesus was throughout the entire region, throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. Perhaps he, he looked and he thought, wow, this guy, he's innocent. I know, I know me. I'm, I deserve to be up there, but they're going to they're gonna nail him to the cross instead of me? He says, I'll take it. And Barabbas is the only individual, literally, the only individual in all of history that could say, Jesus took my place on the cross. But the spiritual application of that in your life and my life is, we're all like Barabbas. We're all guilty before God. We all should have hung on that cross, but Jesus, the holy and just one, took our place. He was our substitute. We should have been on that cross, but instead Jesus hung on that cross. Aren't you thankful that Jesus took your place so that we could know the love of God and forgiveness of God? And then number three, Peter refers to him as the prince of life. Look at verse 15. And killed, he's talking to his fellow Jews, he said, you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. So he refers to Jesus here now in this section as the prince of life. He's saying, how, how could anyone exchange the holy and just one for a murderer? And then how can anyone take the prince of life? The word prince is an interesting word. It means captain. It means author. It means hero. A prince, usually in the honor of that prince, whenever a region or a kingdom was conquered, would be renamed in honor of the ruler. And so Jesus is 
the conquering ruler. He is the king of kings. He is the prince of life, the author of life. He is the giver of life. And what did we do? The human race, we nailed him to a cross. But God raised him back to life. And that's what gives him the status of prince of life. Say that with me, prince of life. And the prince of life has conquered your life and my life. And because the prince of life has conquered your life and my life, he gets to give us a new name. And so the new name that the prince of life gives us is Christian. They were first called Christians in the book of Acts at Antioch. And so now we bear the name. I know that that term has been maligned and misused and abused. It's, it's, it's rarely recognizable in, in our world today. But it's still a biblical phrase. It's still a biblical term. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you are a Christian. Christian. I've got to be careful with that. You are a Christian, right? The name of Christ has been given to you. Look to your neighbor and say, hello, Christian. I'm a Christian. <laughs> In the truest biblical sense of that, and that means a follower of Christ. All right, the next title is Lord. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore. Uh, read this verse out loud with me. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, Peter says, here's what I want for you, my brethren. And here's what God wants for you. Here's what God wanted from me 35 years ago. Repent and be converted. Give your life over to Jesus. Why? So your sins may be blotted out. My sins were many. Carl Toady's sins were many. Your sins are many. But your sins and my sins can be blotted out when we repent. Not when we try to rationalize or justify or make excuses for our sin. Not when we try to call it something other than what it really is, sin. But when we have a change of heart and a change of mind and we turn to God in faith and we repent of our sins and are converted, times of refreshing will come. Times of refreshing. That's an interesting Greek word. Um, it's the Greek word apsukis. It's the transliteration that's spelled A-N-A-P-S-Y-X-I-S. And, and it means to cool by blowing. To cool by blowing. Uh, it denotes in the Greek world, ancient Greek world, it denotes uh, uh, the drying of and the healing of an open wound which the surgeon has left exposed to the air so that it would heal. How many remember whenever you would get a, a scrape or a cut growing up as a kid and you'd run inside and it was stinging and hurting and your mom would be the nurse and the doctor, right? And she would put a little antiseptic on it, right? And then what would she do? Normally what would she do? She would what? She would go. How many of you, your moms did that? Or how many of you as moms, you've done that before? Come on. Am I not alone in this? They go. And as soon as mom did that, it's like, oh, it feels better. <laughs> Don't stop. Right? Revival in a soul is when the breath of heaven is blown upon the wound of sin that Jesus heals by the power of his shed blood on Calvary. And times of refreshing come 
from the presence of the Lord. It also has, uh, it's also applied to, uh, to the climate, to, to weather. That on a hot summer day, uh, a storm blows in and the rain falls. And after the, the freshness of the, way, the rain, there's a cool breeze that comes with it. And you feel so good and so refreshed. And the, and the scent and the smell of the freshness of rain is so wonderful. You're like, oh, this is so refreshing. Peter says, that's what it's like. When you and I repent of our sin, in the presence of the Lord, he sends the breath of heaven into your soul and into your life, and you experience revival. Now, if you're seated to a person next to you that you know, just blow on them. Put a breath mint in first. Say, be refreshed. Like, whoa, no, I rebuke you. And then the next thing Jesus is referred to is he's referred to as Messiah or as Christ. Look at verse 20. Oh, and by the way, do you know what the word Lord means? Lord? It means owner. It means master. It means supreme. So if you are a Christian, you're a Christian. Why? Not because you don't have any struggles. Not because you're not going to have any struggles. Not because you've never sinned. Not because now that you're a Christian, you're never going to sin again. No, no, no. It's that you have ultimately surrendered to Christ and he is supreme. And he is Lord, he's the owner, and he's the master. You know, as a church, we have compassion on the individual. And we've proven it for over 50 years now. But we have no sympathy for sin. Because we know how deadly and damaging sin is in the life of an individual. We love everyone. And this is a safe place for you to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To become everything that God's called you to be. And as the pastor of this church, I want you to know, we're here to help you. We're here to love you. We're here to support you. And we're here to encourage you if your heart is genuine in serving God and following after God and and receiving God's healing and restoration in your life. We won't turn anyone away. I've had young people come up to me after service with tears and say, would you pray for me, pastor? I said, what do I need to pray for you about? I'm struggling. I'm struggling with homosexuality. I said, that's all right. That doesn't scare God. That doesn't scare me. All of us, especially teenagers, we go through life struggling with our sexual identity. And then we're bombarded with the lies of the world, and they add to our confusion. And that's why, as a pastor and as a father, I say the things I say the way I say them. Because I am on a mission to rescue young people from the lies of the enemy so that they can know the truth. I said, how can I help you? I know this is a sensitive issue. You may not even want to tell your parents. You may not have told anybody. I'll keep it a secret. How can I help you? So we're finding ways to help. If you have a struggle in your life, it may be something other than that and you want to keep it anonymous, that's fine. We'll honor that. Call the church. You don't even have to come in. You don't even have to give us your name. Call and speak to one of our life coaches. Call, speak to one of our pastors. Call, speak to one of our ministers or one of our ministry directors. You don't have to give your name. Just say, hey, Pastor Carl mentioned this in the sermon, and I just need somebody to pray for me. So what's going on? And, and sometimes the Bible says in the book of James, chapter 5, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. Sometimes just... The bearing of your guilt 
Say what you want to say about how the Catholics did it, <coughs> private, confessional, whatever. It, it's, it's, it's biblical. I know anything biblical can become tradition and religion and bondage and legalism. And it can happen in the, Christian wor- in the Catholic world or the Protestant world. But say what you want. There's something about bearing your soul to another person, a godly person. Not just anybody, but a godly person. So if you need help, call. We are about to hire a, 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 a God-loving, on-fire follower of Jesus who's a professional counselor, has a master's degree, and is a licensed counselor that's going to become a part of our ministry staff because we not only want to provide pastoral care, ministry and love and support, but we want to provide professional counseling and help because we want to help you in any way we possibly can because we know that Jesus is the answer for whatever the problem may be. Jesus is Messiah, verse 21, 22. He's called the prophet to the Jews. That meant everything because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied that there would come a prophet unlike all the other prophets, and he would be the prophet who would teach us the way of God and show us the way of God. And the Jews understood this. 21st century Americans may not understand this, but when Peter used this phrase, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Verse 21, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. So Peter's quoting Deuteronomy 18. And he's saying Christ is that prophet. But here's something interesting. Even though Jesus is referred to, because he is the prophet, and he's referred to in the Gospels as a prophet, the woman at the well said, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. The, the, the guy that was healed in John 9 uh, said, he's a, he, he must be a prophet. When Jesus healed the widow from Nain's, uh, raised the widow from Nain's son for, to life, uh, they said, Truly a prophet has been among us. But here's what's interesting. In the epistles, Jesus is never referred to as a prophet in the epistles. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, through the apostles writing the epistles, didn't want to confuse any Gentiles. Because sometimes people just relegate Jesus to a prophet. You know, the the Muslims say, well, yeah, he was a prophet, but not as as good of a prophet as Muhammad. The Jews say, yeah, yeah, he was a prophet. He was a good teacher, right? Jesus is so much more than a prophet that the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that none of us ever got confused or simply saw him only as a prophet because he's more than that. He's the servant. He's the holy and just one. He's the prince of life. He's the Lord. He is Messiah. And he is the prophet. And this, this is how Peter ends, verse 22 through 26. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these things. You are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter ends his sermon. We'll begin chapter 4 of Acts next week. You're going to discover five thousand people got saved that sermon 
had the results of 5,000 people being added to the church. Come on, how exciting is that? 5,000. I mean, Peter's on a roll, right? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000. And now just a few weeks, a few days, a few weeks afterwards, 5,000. So how many Christians do we know are in existence at this particular period of time? 5,000 plus 3,000 plus 120 that were in the upper room. Come on, do the math. Come on. Come on, Trinity Christian School students. Come on. Help me out now. 8,120. And it hasn't stopped growing from that moment forward. Now there are literally hundreds of millions who profess faith in Christ. How about you? Who is Jesus to you? He's God's servant. He's God's holy and just one. He's the prince of life. He is the Lord. He is Messiah. He is the promised prophet that has come to show us the way to the Father. And he himself is the only way to the Father. And you could know him as your personal Lord and rescuer and savior if you will simply repent, be converted, turn to the Lord, and you will experience times of refreshing in his presence. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today. And Lord, we know that we're all in need of more of Christ in our life. So we just want to begin by saying, Lord, may you have more of us. May we surrender everything over to you. And Lord, I pray for those that have not yet surrendered their life to Christ. That they would open up their hearts. They would repent and be converted today. So that they can experience a time of refreshing in their own soul. In the presence of the Lord. If that's you, the head's bowed and eyes closed. Pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. Amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?